Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. We're going to begin a new series today. We're going to start in the book of uh, Daniel. If you can find your way to that, if you have a Bible, if not, you can use the passage printed in the bulletin um, or uh, look off someone's over someone's shoulder that's in front of you. We also, I think we still, we have Bibles in the, in the chairs? No Bibles? Okay, we'll try to fix that. Yeah. Um, we're going to look at Daniel. So, uh, starting in chapter 1, see the uh, gospel lived out in the life of this, uh, at the time of this reading, at the time of this chapter, uh, this, uh, he is a teenager, and we're going to see a little bit about his life at this stage. So turn, if you will. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and uh, and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah of Bednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men of your age? The king would, ha- would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and they were were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them to the chief official, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, 
And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of God shall last forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning in our, in our minds as we think and understand, in our hearts as we embrace and feel these experiences, and, as we, and, and in our will and our limbs as we decide and, and act in this world in accordance with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we, we have, uh, many of you know, we have three kids. Um, they're long since grown and gone. And, um, but when they were young, when we first had kids, um, you know, I, I was a youth pastor for, for many years before I became a father. Um, and so, you know, there's, always, there's almost a sense where when you become a father after you've done youth ministry for so long, it's like you, you put what you've been telling everybody to, to the actual test of how that works. In other words, you know, put your money where your mouth is, as it were. And so when you have, when you have toddlers, I think, there was a, I think there was a day in, we, we had two toddlers at the time. It was before we had Kate, and we had Tyler, and he was like four, three or four, and Hannah was you know, one or two. And they're both toddling around, and we were rushing to get out of the house, and I'm trying to get everybody, you know, it was probably some church event, you know, and trying to get everybody out of the house, and I'm trying to get shoes on to my to the toddlers, and you know, and and uh, to my to Hannah and to Tyler, and it's like I just put hers on, so now I can get his on, and now hers are off. And where did they go? And you know, and I'm asking her, where are they? And telling, telling Tyler, hurry up and get your shoes on. And let's, you know, and it's all kind of rushing out. And I remember Becky saying to me, you know, it was a transformative moment in my understanding uh, 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 as a parent. She said something to the effect of, why are you yelling? Toddlers are not capable of hurrying. You're, and basically what she's saying was, is I'm living in the context of a situation that's impossible. I'm, requ- I, I'm making expectations. I'm developing expectations, which is just another word for demands, of a situation that's an impossibility. That I need to see the circumstance far more clearly than, it, you know, I need to understand the circumstances more clearly for what it actually is, not what I wish it would be. I wish a three-year-old could find their shoes and put them on quickly. I wish that a one-year-old could keep her shoes on and the sock that goes with it. I don't... And, and all, what, what I was bringing to that situation was, uh, was, an, was, an, um, was an irrational expectation for the reality of the situation we were in. And that... That sense of irrational expectation is true for many, many, many situations. If, you know, whether it's at your job or whether it's in your, in your family with your spouse. You know, there, there are certain irrational expectations that I have with my, with my own wife that I've lived with for 35 years. And you talk, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I tell Patty I'm going to write a book called Kitchen Theology. I actually don't tell her I'm going to write this book. She says I'm going to write the book. But the title of it is Kitchen Theology because a lot of my illustrations come out of the kitchen. 
sometimes because that's often where we collide and where my sense of, my, where my sense of what reality ought to be and what my, you know, what my expectations are, my wish for reality, my wish for the circumstances is much different than what's possible in that moment for reality. And, and what was the reason I say that that toddler moment with my kids and Becky was so transformative is that once I admitted... To the, once I came to admit to the reality of what it is like for toddlers to exist in this world, in, this, in those moments, my life got a whole lot easier. Not because the circumstances changed, but because I changed in my circumstances. I embraced the reality of what was happening rather than constantly demanding of it in my head a reality that it wasn't. And I probably love my kids better. And I probably, and they probably enjoyed the experience more. And I probably got to see them experience life. And I could laugh at myself and laugh at them and understand. You know, once we get, once we get to, you know, uh, once we get to three-year-olds and one-year-olds, everything slows down. Okay? Another, another reality similar to that is once, once you, uh, when, you're headed to the, when you're headed to the beach on a Friday night, and you get to the Bay Bridge, you're going to experience traffic. So stop yelling. Embrace the circumstances that exist. The reason I tell you those particular vignettes that draw out of our real lives is because Daniel, this passage in Daniel is helping us to see that this, that learning to live in the context of the reality of a situation uh, understanding what it really is rather than what we expect it to be helps us to live more graciously, more boldly, more confidently, more humbly. Daniel was not living in Israel anymore. As a matter of fact, uh, Daniel, the, the book uh, goes into great measures to say is that, uh, that they did live, they did live in Israel for a period of time, and there was a king, Jehoiakim, who, uh, who was king over Judah where Daniel and his friends lived. They were part of the royal family, as a matter of fact, and, and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, besieged Jerusalem, besieged the people of God, and took everyone captive to Babylon. Now, I, you, probably, you probably need to, maybe, maybe you're not adding it, maybe you're not aware of what the word besieged means. I think it's not a word we generally use anymore, besieged. But when something, when a city is besieged. I, I don't know what images that conjures up in your mind. The images that ought to conjure up in your mind is that they were sacked. The entire city was, was laid waste. When Babylon came in, they leveled the place and they overwhelmingly, they overwhelmingly overpowered the city its military forces, and everything about it. They absorbed the city into themselves. They took it captive. They besieged it, which also means besieged. That's a, that, all those words we've used previously when we're talking about, that I'm using previously, talk about how it, how it affects the city as a whole. But at the, at the practical level, what it means is a lot of people died that day. 
Daniel, Meshach, Hazariah, and his friends, they didn't die. And the reason the king, was, the king of Babylon was able to take them to Babylon is because the people in their lives who would have prevented them from being taken were killed. Daniel's family was gone. Daniel's parents were gone. He probably was somewhere in the vicinity when Babylon killed, tortured, slaughtered his family. And now he is ripped out of his nation, ripped out of his family, ripped out of his comfortable place in life as part of the royal family and taken to be a part of an entirely foreign world. Foreign to his foreign to his understanding, foreign to his senses, foreign to his palate, foreign to every everything that he was about to experience is going to be very different. And it's, he was going to be living in a in a in a very pluralistic society. Babylon was a was a sort of a, a, a Go along, get along type society. Babylon was sort of like, you know, we don't have a problem with you as long as you don't have a problem with us. You can you can have whatever you want to have, you can be whoever you want to be, but you can't you can't put your put put your ideas and 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 options above what anyone else's options are. That's a pluralistic society. So it's it's many different viewpoints. <clears throat> all living harmoniously under one overarching head, which is Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his uh, regime. And so uh, all these pluralistic societies uh, have to live and, and acquiesce and assimilate one with the other. So nobody's greater than anybody else. Equal experience with everyone. So the Babylonian society, not very different from American society. In some respects, we live in a we, we live in a free nation. Worship as you wish, but there's all kinds of everything here, and nobody can nobody in our culture, nobody in our in our in our country can sort of you know uh, exert their ideas over against the other, and and we're all equally and understanding, assimilating one with the other in this in this prospect, and it's a very difficult place to live. See, America, and in this respect, one of the things that we have to realize as we relate this to our current, to our setting in America, as it were, just as an example, is that, um, is that if we think that we live in a, what might be viewed as a Christian nation, that would be like trying to, what I was doing with toddlers, We don't live in a Christian nation. Nobody does. We live in a broken world. There is no nation, there is no country, there is no philosophy that is in harmony with Christianity. Nothing in this world does because we are broken. The kingdom of God operates in human hearts and his kingdom is operating but subversively and ultimately will come to fruition when the king shows up again 
But in, the, in our current setting, Christianity is not, is not the, you know, years ago when our nation was founded, Christianity might have been more central, might have been, we might have lived more in a Christian era, as it were, as some authors put it, uh, where Christianity was more central, was more, was more popular, was more sort of um, privileged in some respects. But we don't live in that context anymore. 200 years have gone by, 250 years have gone by, and our nation, is, Christianity, is just one among many other options. Christianity is not privileged. It is plur, it, we are in a pluralistic society. We are, we are not more numerous. We're, we're a minority. You know, Christianity is a minority anymore. And so if we go on living in our country, in our world, if Daniel went on living in, his, in Babylon the way he lived in Israel, he would have he would have exposed himself to far more strain in his world than he currently was experiencing. Just like me trying to raise toddlers, asking them to do things fast. I'm putting more strain in my experience because I'm expecting it to be something it cannot be. And not just cannot be, Okay, not just cannot be, but, but God did not intend to be. Because it says that, that, it says that, uh, that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, this is in verse 1, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered the city into his hands. Why? Why did, why did Jerusalem get sacked? Why have all these people been besieged? Why have Daniel and, and, and his friends been, been taken off to, to Babylon? Why is this the case? Why are we living in a, in a pluralistic, non-godly culture? Because God wanted it that way, currently. Because living in an oppressive environment living in a, in, in a when I say oppressive environment I mean living in hardship living in a in a way that I don't particularly want to live it's very hard it's very awkward it's very suffering it's very oppressive in that in that environment in that atmosphere it that is that is something that is out of our control I can't control when hardship and oppression occur but it's always under God's control and that's how we see it in this capacity. God is always controlling the circumstances. He's the one that's leading Daniel into this setting. Why? Why would God besiege a city and, and, and carry off its best and brightest into another world, uh, where they, into another city, into another place, a pluralistic, pantheistic society that has no love for God whatsoever. Why would God gather up all of his best and brightest and lead, lead them over here and plant them in this new city, having to live in an oppressive environment? And how long did Daniel live in the oppressive environment? Daniel, Daniel writes the story, in, and in chapter 1, he sort of gives you the, he gives you the, he tells you the beginning of the story and he tells you the end of the story in chapter 1. Lest you think, oh, well, this is, this is the beginning of the story. It's not going to always be this way. And, you know, Daniel will find his way out and there'll be, there'll be success over it. No, Daniel lived his whole life here. Because Darius, the first year of Darius' rule, that's 80 years later. 
Why would God carry them over? Because hardship, oppression, suffering are the perfect opportunity for grace. They are the perfect fertile soil for God to do amazing things. And specifically speaking, God wasn't just interested in redeeming the best and brightest of Israel. He's interested in redeeming, in rescuing the worst and miserable in Babylon and in Hanover for that matter. And the way that he goes about rescuing the worst and the miserable in Babylon is by bringing his best and brightest into that place. How did God, how did the Lord desire to, how did the Lord go about saving, rescuing the miserable and the worst of this world? By sending his best and brightest from his own city into this world to live in an oppressed environment his entire life. I, I often, I, I've said this to, I've said this to um, people a number of times, is that when, when we experience a sense of, 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 of offense because of what the world, oper- how the world operates, because the culture operates a particular way or because something's not going my particular way. Um, and and I, I, say, I, I say in the midst of this offense, and even when, I'm fe- when I feel offended, the thing that comes to my mind is, was there ever a day that Jesus, when his, when his eyes opened to the world that he made, but that we broke. Was there ever a moment as he walked as, and as his eyes scanned the, 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 the surroundings, was there ever a moment that he was not exposed to utter, amazingly discouraging offense? Was there, was there ever was there ever a place where Jesus could cast his gaze and not find brokenness and his heart break? Was there ever a moment where Jesus could have seen something or experienced something in this world where his, where his heart would not have been enraged with offense because of the way he made it and the condition it's in now? And yet, is our common understanding of Jesus as we as we casually page through the passages of the New Testament, that he was a man of offense? Do we see him as a bitter man walking around, pointing out all the ways that we've ruined everything that he gave us? Or, or is the common understanding of Jesus as he, as he walked the earth was a man of warmth, a man of grace, a man of love, a man who it says of, in the scriptures that even, even a bruised reed he would, not, he would not break. So tender, not even a bruised reed would he break. Not a smoldering wick would he snuff out. This was, his, this was Jesus. And is there anyone in this world who has more entitlement to offense than Jesus? Because he learned the lesson. He, he embodied the lesson that Daniel is embodying in this passage. 
He understood the nature of the world in which he, he was carried off. And he wasn't carried off. Daniel was carried off. Maybe kicking and screaming, I don't know. Jesus was not carried off to come to the oppressive world to rescue it. He went willingly when asked by his father, send me, let me go, I'll do it. I'll live in the, impressed, in the oppressed environment. I'll live in the, in the abrasive atmosphere so as to bring rescue. Why did God carry Daniel off? Because he's trying to rescue the, the Babylonians. Why are, why are any of us placed in the circumstances we're placed in? Because oppression, hardship, suffering, difficulty are the breeding ground, perfect opportunities to exhibit the grace of God in surprising ways. And we see Daniel. Uh, Daniel, it's, it's very interesting in terms of uh, all the things, all the new things. You know, they get, they get into this new culture. They get into this new world. And the first thing they do is they want to get rid of God's name everywhere. What do you mean, what do you mean Drew? What do you, how are they getting rid of God's name? Well, not, they were getting rid of, you know, Daniel. That L at the end of Daniel, Daniel, that's God's name. Hananiah, ah, that ah at the end of Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, ah and L were the, were the, were the suffixes to names that, that we see all throughout Scripture. That was the name of God attached to their names. That was God's name in its various forms attached to their human names. And the reason that, they were, that often Israelites would name their children in these ways is to say to them, to remind them by their very calling, that by their very, by their very identity, you are possessed by God. You are God's child. You are, you know, um, the movie Toy Story, right? First one. How did we just jump from Babylon to Toy Story? Everybody in the Toy Story, at the end of Toy Story, the reason that Buzz was trying to get out of Andy's bedroom was because he felt like he had an identity and a world that he, that he w was owned by in some other context. And it wasn't until after these adventures and these experiences with his friends and at the end of the story, Buzz is on Andy's bed and he lifts up his foot and the word Andy is written on the bottom. Buzz is now Andy's, and he, and he finally was at home. Daniel's name, God's name was in Daniel's name. Daniel, that was to say to him, uh, you are mine. You, I, I love you. You're my thing. You're my child. You're mine. And, and therefore, your identity is different than everything else. But yet now Daniel goes into another country, into another culture, and they're wiping out God's name. Give him a whole Belteshazzar. We're going we're gonna to name you with some other God's name. He was exposed to new education, different schooling system, different, different literature and culture, different, different entertainment. Different language. Can't speak your language. You can speak our language now. Different books and literature. Different, different foods. Different job. As a matter of fact, we're doing all of this training. We're going to put you in three years of training, three years of our 
of our indoctrination with our system of education, with our knowledge, with our science and literature and, and entertainments, and, and that at the end of that, you're going to get a new job. You're going to work for the very man who killed your family. All that difference, all that strain, all that hardship, all that oppression, which one of those things would you have put your foot down on? If it was your kids and they go into this place and they're told, we're changing your name, we're changing your language, we're changing your education, we're changing your job. And you can't eat the foods you like. Which of those would you have said, I'm not doing that? Maybe, they've, maybe you've already had situations like that. Where you've had to put your foot down. Where you've had to make a chance, a choice in, particular setting, in, in a particular setting. And Daniel is attempting to, it says that he did consecrate himself to the Lord. He said it, was that he, it wasn't that he was making, uh, it wasn't making choices you know, uh, sort of randomly. He was attempting to, be, to honor God. He was attempting to live out his faith. He's attempting to express his love for God, his devotion to God, and much the same as maybe other children of God today are, we're trying to find ways to, hopefully... You're trying to find ways to live faithful to God. Of course, why are you trying to live faithful to God in a, in a pluralistic society is, an, is, is maybe the first question. Why are you trying to do that? And it goes back to you should be doing, you should be doing that the same reason that God carried off all the children, the best and brightest, into Babylon? Why did he carry off the best and brightest into Babylon? So that he could save Babylon. Why did Daniel make the choices he's making? It's because he was in harmony with what God's trying to do in Babylon. How can I be faithful to God? How can I consecrate my life to God? How can I live faithful to what God has called me to so that I can save Babylon? And of the things that were changing, of the ways that the oppressive culture was coming at him, of the ways that they were changing everything about him, which would you have picked? Schools? Books? Movies? Name? Job? Daniel chose food. Does that strike you as odd? Maybe to an American sensibility. I don't know. Why did he choose his food? Well, because here's the thing. Um, maybe the way to put it is this way. If you don't eat, what happens? Down the road, you're going to die. <laughs> Daniel was putting himself, was consecrating himself to the Lord, was, and the reason that he said, I, I'm not going to let my life depend on the king. My life depends on God. And the best way for the king to know that is for me to say, I'm going to eat what he provides, not what you provide. 
But even when he exerts this consecration, even though, even when he exerts his sense of objection, even though when Daniel expresses his displeasure with the food system and with being beholden to the king for his life, he does it with grace. Did you notice that? He does it with grace. He, he goes to the guard and it says he asked permission. He asked permission. He didn't just simply exert his, he just didn't simply throw the food out. He didn't simply, you know, put up a fuss. Didn't just complain about it all. You know, there's a sense where when you're in oppression, you know, what do they say when, when, life, when life brings, uh, when life brings um, hardship is that, we, is that humanity either goes to one end of the spectrum or the other. We either fight it or we flee it. We have a fight or flight response to, to conflict, to difficulty, to suffering, to, to unease, to sadness. We have fight or flight. But that's not, those aren't the only two responses. <laughs> Those are the extremes. There's all kinds of stuff in the middle. And Daniel was finding that middle road between fight or flight. Daniel was living in the tension of, I know I need to be consecrated, but I also know there's a sense where when you see the interaction he has with the guard, there's a sense where he goes, this guy's on the hook too. And and, and my preferences and my privileges and my sense of calling by God isn't the only thing on the line here. And Daniel, even while he's expressing those things in truth, he does it with grace so that the guy, the guy whose life is also on the hook for this thing, he doesn't throw him under the bus while Daniel gets off scot-free. And so he works in harmony with the, with, with the guard and with, with the authorities that are over him. He works in harmony to show them the benefits of God's grace, the benefits of living under the consecration of God, under the, under the loyalty, under the, under the, the love and, and, and surrender to God. He's, he's, exp- he's showing him the glory of the system, the glory of living consistent with God's plan. And letting the guy benefit from it as much as he does. And therefore, showing, giving him the chance to be rescued to it. To see, Daniel puts, puts a situation out there. Daniel picks the food because, because there's a sense where when, when the, 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 the food he wants to eat turns out better, they know why it turned out better. It turned out better because of God. And Daniel puts himself, so the sense where the choice he makes, it puts himself at risk most, and it puts God on the spot. Because God's got to come through, right? I mean, if they change the diet, you know, the, the king, the king and, and all of his officials, they knew what food to give. And the king's being generous, giving him his own food, some of his own portions. And presumably that was to help these best and brightest stay the best and brightest. And Daniel's going, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little kink in that process. I really like not to be um, eating off the king's table. Um, 
Not that there was anything particularly wrong with anything the king was offering them. There's nothing about the, the food or the wine that was, that was uh, objectionable. That was certainly all a part of Israelite culture, as it were, some of it. But what he's saying is, I don't want to be beholden to the king. I'd rather have my own. I, I'd rather be beholden to the Lord. And here's what we'd like to go with. And let's do a test. Let's do 10 days on my diet. And then you see how we are. And if we're better or worse, then, then, you know. And so Daniel sets up a test, as it were, sets up a situation where if God doesn't show up and makes him look better, makes him look more nourished and more fit and, 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 and more best and brightest, then, you know, it may not go his way. But he trusted that God's grace would operate. He trusted that being faithful to the Lord, faithful to his commands, faithful to, to surrendering to him, not to the king, would turn out beneficial prospects. And it did. And in the end, he was far better than the rest. The other thing that we notice is that Daniel, in this prospect, you know, the, uh, the, when, when he went through this indoctrination period of three years and was brought to the king, and the king, the king interviews them all and discovers that Daniel and his friends are far better, 10 times better than any of these other guys that went through. And they, presumably, they were, there were some best and brightest from other cities they gathered up. And, the, and these guys, Daniel and his friends, were far better, far surpassed the king's expectations, 10 times better. It says that, and, 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 I, and, and I love the way that Daniel puts it, it says that in verse 17, 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Because he carried them off to Babylon, they plundered that system for all it was worth. They took advantage of every opportunity they had to learn everything they could about that culture and about every culture that Babylon had scooped up into itself. They became a sponge of, of knowledge about the world and about, and about life and about peoples and nations and wisdoms, all because they embraced the process that God had placed them in. They had embraced, they had surfed the wave of oppression and learned to live, navigate that circumstance with harmony with kindness, with love, so that God can redeem that culture rather than simply placing them there to rail against that culture. God didn't bring them there simply to complain about it and to point out all of its mess. He wanted to redeem them out of the mess. He wanted to get the heart of Nebuchadnezzar because you get the heart of the king and it trickles down to everybody else. Now, just so you, um, I'm going to follow Daniel, because Daniel tells us the end of the story by saying he was there all through Nebuchadnezzar's reign and then up to the beginning of Cyrus's reign. And he was there for 80 years. In the end, God wins. He he, he, he carries off the best and the brightest and places them in this oppressive culture in order to redeem that culture, to save it for himself. And he was there 80 years, and he did. 
And we're going to see that's the, that's the story of the book of Daniel and how that occurred. Because Daniel viewed himself as God's servant and then became the servant of the king. And when we take the low road of servanthood, which is the same road Jesus took, the best and the brightest came from afar into a broken world. Not to rail against it, not to be offended by it, but to redeem it, to love it, to serve it so that it would change and see his grace in it. That's what Daniel did. He became the servant evangelist, the servant redeemer for Babylon. And that's what God has been doing with all of his servants ever since. Jonah was, a, was supposed to be a servant redeemer for Nineveh. He was a poor servant. Worst preacher in the world. And yet, with the worst preacher in the world who had the worst attitude in the world, and who had, who had, all he wanted to do was complain. All he wanted to do was rail against them. All he wanted to do was see God destroy this nation. And God says, dude, you are not moving in the direction I want you to move. But even with a bad attitude, a bad direction, a bad motivation, a bad sermon, what does God do to Nineveh? Saves it. And if you can do that with one guy, what do you imagine he's doing with all of his children in an oppressive world in which we live today? Just like grains of salt saturating, saturating the, the, the decaying places of our world, bringing new life in places where only death would result if his people weren't there. Where else in the world should our culture expect to find hope if not within the community of God's people? Where else in the world do we expect that our culture would find a sense of joy, a sense of relief, a sense of refuge, if not within the community of God's people? Why has he carried his people off to a dark and weary world except to redeem it, to bring God's grace in small, gracious moments. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that, Lord, you have, you have not carried us off to a to an oppressive atmosphere, whether that atmosphere is in our jobs or in our neighborhoods or in our communities, to, to rail against it or to, to, to uh, punish us. But, Lord, you carry your people off to live the life of Christ, to incarnate your gospel through grace, through love, through, through connection and engagement so that you might have them, that you might redeem the rest of your world. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater sense of understanding of that and help us to live in harmony with your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.